RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by listeners like you, supporters on Patreon. Join us today at patreon.com slash missionlog. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 353, Shattered Mirror. another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we explore the morals, meanings, and messages of every episode of Star Trek. This week, Shattered Mirror. Once again, we step through the looking glass. Wait, is this the same fairy tale? No, it's my mistake, my mistake. My apologies to you, John. My apologies to the listeners. No worries, no worries. Shattered mirror on the wall, who's the fairest Jennifer Sisko of all? That's closer, right? You're getting there. You're getting there. Okay. With each step, Norman, you're getting there. Yeah. Okay. So uh, while I sort that out, here's something that I actually know uh, very intimately and want to tell you how to contact us. So Mission Log relies on your participation. So that's why we want to hear from you. Help us spread the word by giving a like or share on Facebook or Twitter where you'll find us at Mission Log Pod. Tell others about us there. And if you're inclined to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful and we'll share those in a future supplemental. You can also reach us on Skype at Mission Log Pod or by calling 323 522 5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Now, the only feat that would be more incredible than John reading his copious amounts of trivia is for him to read it reflected in a shattered mirror. But that's bad luck, so I think we'll just stay away from that. So here's to your trivia, John. Well, thank you, Norman. Here we go. Trivia for a shattered mirror. The episode was written by Iris Stephen Bear and Hans Beimler. Now, this is the first time we've had this pairing on DS9, and it definitely won't be the last. You may recall that Hans had a number of credits as a writer on TNG going back to season one and usually working with Richard Manning. They crafted such episodes as The Schizoid Man and The Emissary, uh, that would be The Emissary on TNG, not Emissary on DS9, and uh, yikes, uh, Shades of Grey. Uh, He also shared a teleplay credit with Ira and Richard and Ronald D. Moore for Yesterday's Enterprise, and he bounced around a little between TNG and DS9, and he came back to DS9 starting with Paradise in the middle of Season 2. Shattered Mirror is directed by James L. Conway, veteran director and a Star Trek fan. He only directed a handful of TNG, but over there he did Justice and The Neutral Zone and Frame of Mind. Then he came over to DS9, where he started with an incredible episode duet, He's back here for two more shows, and then we will catch him again on both Voyager and Enterprise. Hey, Norman, one of the things that I want to point out with Shattered Mirror is that there are just some very impressive special effects in the finale 
of this one. Um, now, I wasn't surprised at all to learn that they had spent something like five times the normal effects budget for an episode of DS9 here. And um, keep in mind, you know, it's not just about the practical effects. There are explosions on bridges, that kind of thing. Um, and it's not just about putting models in front of a camera and saying, okay, go. When you go back and you look at all the different elements in the shots, you know, each requiring a separate pass from the camera, and then you've got multiple camera angles, it's a lot to add up. Um, also, I love the story here of that giant Klingon cruiser. So that model was built for TNG's finale episode, All Good Things, and then they changed it up a little bit for the DS9 episode, The Way of the Warrior. It's worth noting, though, so that model and the model of the Defiant in real life, they're about the same size. Now, you can't really just shoot models together anyway. You, you wouldn't do that regardless. And in this case, there just wasn't enough detail on that cruiser to be able to just shoot it and scale it up on film. It would have looked like a toy. So they found a compromise. They shot the models from a distance if they were showing the top of the Klingon ship, and then they built a detail section about 25 feet long just of the bottom so they could switch angles and show all that close-up action. It was a good way around that. Well, let's talk about guest stars. Um, as is often the case with the Mirror Universe show, you don't really have a heavy emphasis on guest stars since it's really about your series regulars getting to do something different. Few people worth pointing out, though. We do have Felicia Bell back as Jennifer, the mirror Jennifer, of course. And sadly, this is the last time we will have Felicia Bell. And it's kind of weird to think of Aaron Eisenberg as a guest star at this point, but of course, Nog is off at the Academy. So here he is on DS9 now that Quark and Rom have been killed off in prior mirror episodes. Finally, I am so glad to see the return of one of my favorite guest stars. And so recently, too, after its appearance in Hard Time, we welcome back Weapons Locker number 47, played as ever by the outstanding Action Packer by Rubbermaid. I have one small note to add for your trivia, John. Mm -hmm. So sure. yeah. Jennifer Sisko is played by uh, Felicia Bell. Yes. Avery Books played Gabriel Bell. He did. So he technically, did. Avery Brooks as Gabriel Bell at one point in time was married to Jennifer Sisko, who was played by Felicia Bell. Felicia Bell. That has absolutely yeah. zero bearing on this episode, but I thought <laughs> it was kind of cool. All comes together. <laughs> Welcome to Deep Space Nine. As if the constant threat of Dominion attack isn't enough to keep you on edge, let's see what happens when the dead walk again. Oh, and try the jump sticks. They're exquisite. Prologue. Standing in his usual spot atop the promenade, Jake Sisko gazes down at the passers-by with a wistful look in his eyes. As Constable Odo approaches, Jake defensively tells him that he's stuck on a story and that visiting this spot helps clear his head. However, Odo is not here to hurry him away as he's done so in the past and can see that Jake's a little forlorn, missing his best friend. Quark abruptly barges into the conversation, explaining to Odo how much Jake truly misses Nog, but not as much as Quark misses one of his best waiters. 
Not in the mood for lectures of any kind, Jake decides to dwell on his thoughts elsewhere. As he returns home, he finds his father sitting on the couch with a woman who looks exactly like, but can't possibly be, his mom. Act 1. As Jake stands there in disbelief, this stranger quickly explains that she is the other Jennifer Sisko, the woman his father met while trapped in a parallel universe. Jake is simply beside himself, unable to hide his affection for a complete stranger who looks and sounds exactly like his mother. However, this makeshift family reunion is interrupted as Benjamin is called to ops for a meeting with Bajoran Minister Gator, who is anxious to begin his tour of the station with the emissary. Jennifer asks to spend a little more time with Jake and hopes they all could have dinner together afterwards. After an extremely exhausting three-hour tour of the station, Sisko returns to his quarters, but Jake and Jennifer are gone. As the computer informs him that Jake is no longer on the station, Sisko scans his quarters one last time, only to find a very familiar device sitting on his dining room table. It is a similar transporter device that Smiley, Chief O'Brien's counterpart from the Terran Rebellion, used to travel between the parallel dimensions. Dax and Kira speculate that Jennifer simply took Jake over for a glimpse of life on the other side. But Sisko senses foul play afoot. Accompanied by Chief O'Brien and a well-armed Major Kira, Sisko engages the device and beams to the parallel universe, leaving Kira and the Chief behind. It seems that the invitation to cross over was intended for just one. Upon materializing on Terok Nor, the captain is met by Smiley, who puts Sisko at ease by telling him that Jake is with Jennifer on a tour of the station. However, as armed guards enter the room and train several weapons on Sisko, Smiley makes it clear that he's not about to let him leave just yet. Act 2. Smiley freely admits that he used Jake as the bait to lure Sisko to Terok Nor. He further explains that while he was on Deep Space Nine, he downloaded an exorbitant amount of data, just in case. Fortunately for the Rebellion, there was enough data and schematics to build their own copy of the Defiant, which now needs to be fully armed and operational in four days, as the Alliance fleet is coming in force to reclaim the station. And Cisco's technical expertise with the Defiant is of paramount importance to remedy several major structural problems, which, like the original, also sidelines this copy. If they fail to deliver a fully functional Defiant on time in order to repel the incoming Alliance fleet, then all on the station, including Jake and Jennifer, will either die fighting or serve life sentences in Alliance or processing centers. And if things could get any worse, an irate Captain Bashir storms into the room, demanding to know if Sisko is going to help and adjourning the meeting by punching him in the face and balancing out an old score. Captain Sisko finally catches up with Jake at Quark's bar, now run by Nog, who is bold, crass, sexist, and exactly the complete opposite of his real best friend in almost every way. Jake tells his father that spending time with Jennifer feels like being with his real mom, no matter how much Sisko tries to persuade him that she's not what Jake thinks she is. As for Jennifer, she finally confronts Benjamin with the truth that this entire scheme to maneuver Sisko into working on the Defiant was her idea, and that Jake's emotional manipulation is a small price to pay for any victory against the Alliance. And as much as she agrees with Benjamin for her to leave Jake alone, the problem is, Jake won't leave her alone. Meanwhile, on a massive Klingon vessel, a chained and collared Elam Garrick grovels at the feet of Worf, regent of the Alliance, as he blames Garrick entirely for the loss of Terak Nor. 
And naturally, Garrick deflects the blame on Intendant Kira Norris, who bargained the station for her life. Garrick begs for his chains to be removed, and Worf promises they will once every rebel on the station is killed. Act 3. With a four-day clock quickly ticking away, Captain Sisko and Smiley are pressing hard, making as many technical repairs and upgrades they can before the Alliance fleet arrives. In the midst of their progress, Jadzia Zak storms onto the bridge, slaps Sisko for taking advantage of her when they last met, and pulling a knife to Sisko's throat, making her point that he will never touch her again. In a nearby corridor, Intendant Kira Nerees screams in agony. Or is it pleasure? At the hands of Captain Bashir's abusive tactics, trying to escape from being led to an interrogation session. Sisko lambasts Bashir for his cruelty and malice and reminds him that just because the Alliance was brutal, the rebellion doesn't have to be. Meanwhile, as the Alliance Armada continues to close in on Tarek Nor, Worf receives reports from one of his aides of an unknown classification of attack ship being built at the station. His aide states that it is armed with improved photon torpedo technology, multi-targeting phaser banks, but most concerning to Worf, it will be fully operational within two days. Still chained and groveling at Worf's feet, Garrick urges Worf to increase speed and make haste to the station, while continuing to lay blame on the head of the intendant for his current plight. After a long day of work, Captain Sisko returns home for a brief respite. He shares a quiet moment with Jennifer, who tries to comfort him with a massage, telling him that he has done well with Jake and confessing to him that she truly enjoyed spending time with him, the son she will never have. And no sooner than Sisko finished this conversation, the chief arrived with grim news that the Alliance fleet is now eight hours away. Act 4. Sisko and Smiley get right back to work, but both accept that eight hours may not be enough time to launch a fully operational defiant. Dax suggests that they need to find a way to buy more time, and Bashir believes he can do so with using their only attack raider as a decoy. Ever the tactician... Sisko maneuvers Intendant Kira into revealing that she too will be killed if the Alliance succeeds in retaking the station. As Garrick had had plenty of time to align himself with the Regent to poison his mind against her. Believing this, she informs Sisko that the Alliance fleet has poor targeting sensors that can be fooled with warp shadows. After accidentally pig-sticking Garrick for stealing the key to his shackles, which turned up being lost in the boot of Garrick's guard, Worf is informed that six raiders are approaching unaware that his fleet is firing at phantoms. Back on the Defiant, Jennifer gives Benjamin a hand in speeding up some of the last-minute upgrades thanks to her smaller hands. She tells Benjamin that no matter how much she confesses to Jake who the rebels were and what they were trying to achieve, none of that mattered to him, because she just reminds him too much of his mother. And with that, she offers to escort Jake off the station before the Alliance fleet arrives, knowing and trusting that Benjamin is as good as his word, and will get the ship launched on time. Jennifer finds Jake at his usual spot, atop the promenade, killing time with Nog. Or is it the other way around? Suddenly, the Alliance fleet arrives and immediately opens fire on Terak Nor. Smiley dismisses Sisko from his duties and permits him to go home. But ever the soldier and the commander, Sisko takes the Defiant into battle with Smiley, very much like his counterpart Chief O'Brien, comfortable in executing his captain's orders. And in a surprising turn of events, Nog, under the pretense of bringing Intendant Kira her dinner, dispatched the guard and frees Kira as a thank you for repaying her for the favor when she had his uncle's cork and rom executed, leaving Nog to inherit the bar. Ever the opportunist and survivalist, Kira thanks Nog for his help, 
and then kills him, tying up the only loose thread that she knew was still alive and escaped. That is, until she ran into Jennifer and Jake. Act 5. The Defiant is now in fully operational combat mode and begins to change the tide of the battle by dispatching several birds of prey. Even Smiley is enjoying himself as Sisko teaches him a few new combat tactics to remember for future engagements. Meanwhile, as Intendant Kira escorts Jennifer and Jake to be handed over as a gift to the Regent, Jennifer pleads for Kira to leave him behind. Feigning that she would do so, Kira raises her phaser, and Jennifer instinctively jumps in front of Jake, shielding him from the blast. And even though she isn't his mother, she sacrifices herself for the son she will never have. Stunned by this, Kira lets Jake go, adept to Captain Sisko that she intends to collect. The Defiant, now under the piloting prowess of Captain Sisko, engages War's flagship for the final battle. The flagship, which is far too large to target such a smaller and more maneuverable fighter, has several of its remaining birds of prey draw the Defiant away. But not for long after, Captain Bashir and a single fighter dispatch the Defiant's attackers, leaving the flagship undefended. With their concentrated firepower, they weaken the flagship shields and force Regent Wharf to withdraw, while Garrick sowing the seeds of revenge against the Intendant all the while, reinforcing to Wharf that it is her to blame for all of this failure to begin with. With the battle won and the Alliance threat quieted for now, Captain Sisko joins Jake in the infirmary to say goodbye to Jennifer again as they share another tight embrace for yet another Jennifer Sisko taken violently from their lives. The end. There's something about the future as depicted by Star Trek uh, that that still deeply concerns me, Norman, and that is the fact that nobody seems to be able to walk past a display of upholstery without turning it into a uh, horrible, horrible sweater. That that seems to be something that I happens. agree. I totally yeah. agree. There is literally like the greatest meme out there that says who wore it better, and I think it was bus upholstery <laughs> or Jake Sisko's oh, sweater. No. Look, hey, I, I, it, mm-hmm. it's not just Jake. I, I'm looking at Wesley. And honestly, you know, at least a lot of the Ferengi have a little more designer cut going on, but there's just a lot of upholstery. And I think you're right. Yes, bus upholstery being used. I think that a lot of the designers, you know, in Star Trek and Deep Space Nine, and I think that they were just really challenged with going to like textile wholesalers and trying to find, you know, things on the cheap. Yeah. You know, it's it's almost kind of like... um. It wasn't Matt Jeffries. Was it Robert Blackman who was the costume designer for uh, TOS? Bill Tice for TOS? Bill Tice. And then Bill he was Tice. there for the first season of uh, Next Gen. And then Bob Blackman came along for the remainder. Yeah. I mean, they have a budget mm-hmm. and they just have to say, like, what looks futuristic? Right. That looks futuristic. Right. And and doesn't look and yeah, it doesn't it. look off the shelf. You know? That that's right. you know, using unconventional materials and putting them together in ways that Maybe a normal designer wouldn't do. So I, I get the idea, but man, sometimes the future is just very odd looking. The future is so bright and it's textiles. You've got to wear yes, shades. Exactly. I think that's yeah. what we're saying. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's funny is that the first thing that I, th- that I thought of when Jake was hanging out on top of the promenade and looking for inspiration mm-hmm. was inspiration point. <laughs> I know inspiration point means like, different things to different people of a certain generation, but it's sure. kind of like, you know, his and Quark's spot. Yeah. You know, it's where they hung out. Yeah. To be inspired, to hang out with girls. Right. 
<laughs> right? Him and Nog. Him and Nog. Not, not, not I'm sorry. Yeah. Who I'm, sorry, I'm not saying that Quark yeah. wouldn't go there to look at girls too, but yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, him and him and Nog and and Quark being kind of like the. So you had so the inspiration point from like the 1950s and 1960s, yeah. you know, where the teenagers would go and right. neck. It was a very right. happy days thing. So, they always mentioned it in happy days. Yeah. So they would hang out. They yeah. would go in their cars. There would be a cop there like Odo who was kind of busting their chops. <laughs> but the reason why I brought up Quark is because Quark would be like the uncle who would like hide booze. You know, in the bushes. Right. Yeah. He, he's so yeah. that you know, so the kids could party and yeah. score. Yeah, I love it. He is that guy. He totally is. And, and speaking of that place, yeah. though, so DS Nine did another one of these like fake drama moments where it's it's Odo and Jake having a conversation, and then clear across the promenade, in walks Quark responding to something that they're talking about. It's like, dude, you were. You were so far, you were not a part of this conversation, and yet you overheard it and joined in. It's like cartoonish. It's like he like slides in from like, you know, uh, off screen scene. He goes, Did someone say not? Nah? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, zip. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they, they, they do that. And, and again, it's the unnecessary dramatic entrance. It's like, you know, Jake walking in, Dad, I'm home. Mom? Like, nobody bothers to say anything ahead of time about any of this and and ds9 i i think i've been more acutely aware of it other shows do it absolutely i just think i've been more acutely aware of it here where it's somebody on the other side of a door other side of a wall there's two other people having a conversation and then that third person just happens to get there at exactly the right time but you know they couldn't hear what was going on and yet they respond to that it, it's yeah stuff like that drives me insane but to have to have uh, uh, Jake walk in like that was just like, okay, yeah, they just they figured they had to milk every ounce of drama out of this that they could. You know, I don't want to like nitpick her performance because this isn't really like a nitpick. It's more of a compliment. Mm-hmm. But I remember seeing Felicia Bell as Jennifer Sisko in the pilot episode Emissary. Not the Emissary, mm-hmm. but Emissary, mm-hmm. as you said before. And I remember saying that, you know, I know Star Trek – they they spend a lot of their money on their marquee actors, and obviously in Emissary, they spend a lot on effects and sets and costumes and things of that nature. So they couldn't afford the top-tier mm-hmm. guest actors, right. of course. And it felt that way with her performance in Emissary, mm-hmm. not that she had a large yeah. role, but the more that I've seen her appear, and especially in this episode, I felt that, wow, she's really kind of evolved in her craft and in in some scenes i was like she's really selling me on uh, how much that she regrets doing what she did to jake and if things could be different she would go and kind of fight for a normal family Hmm. with them interesting yeah now i i I would say that yeah what i picked up on was that she felt more at ease here first of all she was given a lot more to do which was cool because certainly mm-hmm. an emissary, she had very little to do. But uh, there's an ease of her being in this world and being around these people that is very different from the Jennifer that we we have met before. Technical note, I, I thought that schematic of the Defiant 
showing up on that screen was good. I kept trying to figure out that effect because, of course, later Star Trek, uh, you have a lot more practicals. And even on DS9, you had practicals, but they were usually smaller. It was like a tube TV hidden behind a wall. You know, this was a really large screen. So it had to be a composite. And it kind of just in that first shot just sort of floats there a little. But Mm -hmm. it was cool because we rarely get a big moving graphic like that in uh, in these shows so nice little shot there you know in terms of like you know technical uh achievements you know you're talking about alexander siddig's beard and what they were able to do with the makeup and trying to make that a seamless kind of transition between how he had to shave and how they had to get that back but i just don't buy gritty tough Bashir. <laughs> you don't i just don't and i love dr Bashir. i really yeah. do but it's just, he's so, and, you know, back in when he was shooting this, he's just so young yeah, looking and yeah. thin and frail right. in his thinness. <laughs> and I just don't see him, you know, if he threw a punch at somebody, it would shatter every bone in his hand, you know, and right. just, I just don't, you know, I, anyway, though, it's just, I know, but I, That's I, a I, I hear it. And he made a conscious decision to try to be even tougher as this Bashir and, yeah, it just uh, it doesn't always necessarily play good on him, though. I mean, he he definitely uh, he definitely tried to sell it. Let's see. I now I was definitely amused at Nog's uh, little monologue there about insisting on tall women, <laughs> trusting trusting <laughs> tall women, not tall men, though. I mean, just what a weird little aside to have for him. There's some kind of weird Napoleonic complex thingy going on. Yes, with him. yes. I don't know what it is, but it's just I loved there. it. Yeah. And speaking of character stuff, uh, hey, Garrick on a leash. I mean, there's something about DS9 at this point, just embracing some uh, look, some S&M imagery here with Garrick and Worf. Uh, and and I, I just I love that Garrick is this rich palette of of personality and emotion and character for the writers to keep experimenting with it's like you can just throw anything at them and and it'll work in some weird way have i told you my theory on that andrew robinson's garrick is the bacon of star trek i don't don't think you've put it in quite those words no so he is so think about bacon and what bacon is to because i know you love i I, I made what bacon does telling the total truth about four hours ago i made candied bacon so that that was uh, a treat for today yes Mm -hmm. exactly so when you think about food you think about how it's enhanced by bacon it's never it's never filet wrapped bacon it's bacon wrapped filet Right, or it's bacon wrapped shrimp. It's never shrimp. It's like bacon is always oh, the yeah. lead. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Too much of it spoils it. Just enough of it is sublime and not enough of it is tragic. <laughs> That's right. That, that is, is Garrick. Garrick. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, right? Well, yes. Perfect. All right. The, the bacon theory of Garrick holds for sure. Oh, man. And uh, speaking of our other mirror characters, thank goodness Dax slaps Cisco. Waiting for that moment. I was so glad that happened. Oh, man. And with Garrick and Worf, uh, the bit with the key, it was brutal. It was perfect, but it was brutal. I mean, that was just, it was a, a very interesting scene. It was weird for me. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was just like, he's looking for a key. The key fell in his 
I don't know. It was just weird uh-huh. for me. It, it, I'm not going to say it was terrible, but it was just it, weird. It seemed to me like this this little bit that the writers kind of fell in love with. Like, it, it was almost like a, a Tarantino-ish thing, something that is so ridiculous, but yep. they're treating it dead seriously. And it's there to kind of ratchet up the tension. Like, okay, how far are they going to take? Oh, he stabbed him. Oh, that's how far we're taking this, <laughs> you know? So I I, I love stuff like that. Uh, I, I thought it was just strange and dark and kind of wonderful that we see that other Klingon going, oh, oh, no, I, I, I have the key. <laughs> if, it weren't, if it weren't for Garrick being in that scene, I would have discounted it. Yeah. Like, because it's Garrick, like I yeah, said, well, that scene works The bacon for me. worked, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I will yeah. give you this, you know, uh, Worf, he seems a little out of place in this episode. Like, you know, again, the actors, they're, they're having fun and they get to play against their type usually. Um, it, it's just, it's one of those things where, the okay, the mirror universe is so different and anything goes, yet it's also so much the same that we have a new cast member who has a guaranteed minimum so we better work him into the story, <laughs> you know, even mm-hmm. though we had uh, had him up until this point. Although it is a little bit of trivia that they had tried to work in Worf in the previous uh, Mirror episode, but Michael Dorn was working on TNG. They couldn't get him. The timing didn't work out. So we would theoretically have seen him before. And all those lines that they had written for Worf, they actually gave to Garrick in that previous episode. So... Oh, I see. You know, but it is this kind of strange, like, oh, okay, well, we have Michael Dorn now starting with season four. Okay, now there's a Worf in the Mirror Universe, too. This episode does have a lot of that flavor mm-hmm. to it, where you can feel certain things are kind of forced in there. It's like, like you know, square peg, round hole yeah. kind of thing, yeah. you know, where you just got to get things in contractually. And maybe that's the reason why this episode was made. I don't know. But I thought that the whole Worf as the Regent thing was just a little hokey mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Because the whole thing with him and Garrick was like, there's Jabba, oh, right. and then there's Jabba's little minion monkey, <laughs> Salacious Crumb, which is Garrick, yeah. which kind of fits, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, but it's like, I wish that, it's kind of like the, the mirror universe version of Klingons shouldn't be the uh, same they're, as they're Klingons. Just, uh, well, you know what I mean? See, but that, that's the whole thing with the mirror universe anyway. It's like, they're totally different and opposite, except for all the ones who aren't. I mean, it, it, it's, yeah, yeah it, it's, ah, we'll get into it. We'll, we'll See, talk about the pros and cons of the mirror universe. Right. <laughs> it's just that the, like, I think a lot of people think that the rules of the mirror universe are as follows. If you are this in the positive mm-hmm. universe, you are the negative in the mirror yeah. universe. That's, I think that's what was established in mirror, mirror. Right. 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 Yeah. But. I mean, and, and, and just like this, you know, with me, with the, with the goatee, this is mirror universe right. norm. I usually don't exactly. do this. Anything but, goes. Yeah, anything and, goes. Anything yeah. goes in the mirror universe. Uh, I will have to say that with Worf, nice little uh, bit of him saying, make it so. I did appreciate that. Yeah. And um, look, just one last shout out to Nog, the, the late Aaron Eisenberg. He took out a guy with a salad. He took out a guy with a salad and that... That is my warning right now about eating healthy. If you were to take a guy out with a salad, John, what would what produce would do the most damage to somebody's textiles? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Oh, you know, avocado stains are going to be hard to get out. Yeah. Yes. 
Is this an episode of DS9 only a mother could love, or is there more going on? Let's have the analysis. I feel like I was just saying, Norman, that you know the mirror universe is so mysterious and so vast, and anything goes. And you know what's up is down, and and uh, we have to do everything we can to avoid getting there. Uh, but but here's a little device you can hold in your hand that literally just lets you beam over there whenever you want. Yeah, we can just pop over there. You just you want to go have lunch in the mirror universe? Sure, sure. You know, find out who's fighting who. We'll just pop over. I mean, for the for all the fans that really don't like understand like where this came from, the Mirror Universe was born from Star Trek, the original series Mirror Mirror, where there was this haphazard ionic storm that transposed the beaming process of Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Uhura. I'm sorry, Kirk, McCoy, Uhura, and Scotty yeah. at the same time. And then it transposed them to a universe of barbarism and of terror, paranoia, cruelty, malice. That was the mirror universe. And that is established in canon. And the one thing that I never really felt like in any other version of the mirror universe was being able to reach that same type of gravitas that that one episode was able to establish. You never really felt like there were things at stake the way that there were things at stake in that episode. Yeah, I mean, Mirror Mirror in its own way feels a bit cartoonish, but it also feels dangerous. Like, oh, oh, they can literally just bump into anybody who will try to kill anybody else. Right. And it's not sustainable, but it felt dangerous. And it felt like, okay, it is a huge mistake for us to be here, and we have got to get out as fast as we can. You know, the same thing has been said about Star Trek and time travel. I know that I've said it about Star Trek and time travel. Like At one point, time travel was an accident. It was a mistake. And you had better do everything you can to not let that happen again. And fast forward a little bit, it's like, how can we solve this problem? Well, we could just do time travel. All right, <laughs> let's, let's push the time travel button and uh, we'll do that. You know, that's actually a really good point, John, because at one at one point in time with time travel in Star Trek, it was very risky. Then all of a sudden, it's like, what's the solution? If we slingshot around the sun, we can get back mm-hmm. to our own time, like exactly back to our own time. So that's where right. that's where certain things with Star Trek, when you kind of go to the well too many times, even the fans, hardcore fans will notice it, and even kind of happy-go-lucky fans or fans that don't really pay attention to this stuff – They'll notice that, too, because there's like, you know what? How many times can you do this particular trope? And I said this um, to a friend of mine, and I put this in my notes, and I want to read this kind of specifically because this is how I feel. I felt that this particular episode misses the darkness, the gritty darkness of the mirror universe. It Mm. seems to have been Disneyfied. If that's an Mm. adjective, an an apt adjective. In the way that Times Square in New York was kind of huh. Disney-fied right. to right. attract more tourist dollars as opposed to that ridiculously dangerous, gritty, <laughs> crime-infested hub of a New York City that it was, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
No, that's that's a very interesting point. Well, I, I mean, I, I I feel like as long as we're on the subject here, and I don't want to feel like I'm skipping to the end of our show, but the, there's something about this episode that feels like there are huge missed opportunities. And I apologize in advance for the little bit of a rant because this honestly follows up with previous mission log discussions about the mirror universe. So I look, I don't want to sound like a missing, uh, like a broken record, but I feel like it has to be said, you know, my, my problem now with the mirror universe, as opposed to when we first got introduced to the mirror universe is that the whole conceit, like, like you just said, Norman, is that it started out as this one-off trick, this one-off conceit to tell a story and let our cast have some fun in the process and then get out of there and leave with a hopeful message. And like that's all you had to do. You had to get to that point where you had that hopeful message and get our characters out of danger and then move on, right? And now every time we go back... And I'm kind of grateful that we didn't get a Mirror Universe episode in TNG because it just would have felt like even more. Now it's it feels to me like this excuse for playing dress up and mustache twirling. And that isn't to besmirch the actors. They look great playing dress up. They're having a great time with with uh, mustache twirling. But at the end of the day, I ask why? Like, what, what's the, the point? What's the reason for doing this? And all along the way, it feels like there are missed opportunities by doing that. So we talked not that long ago about how Jake Sisko, as a character, was so racked with guilt that in an alternate timeline, he grew into old age solely obsessed with trying to save his father, even when his father basically told him, let it go. You know, and here we have Jake reunited with his mother and those emotional beats. I, I feel like it's about two seconds out of a 45 minute episode that should have been profound that that should have been absolutely gut wrenching, heartbreaking, a profound moment for Jake. Right. Uh, or a series of moments for Jake. And I, I also go back to previous mission log discussions where the discussion was about death and loss and you know looking at that through the lens of a holodeck where theoretically you could have a Tasha Yar who keeps living in the simulation or where Wesley could still go hang out with Jack Crusher here's Jake's mom not really but close enough here's Jake's mom and we're just sort of in a race to get to the end of the episode to get our characters back. And then what are we going to do? Well, well, we've got to kill her off and we have a little poignant moment at the end, but then we just know they're going to be back on prime timeline or, you know, prime universe DS nine in a few seconds. This is a missed opportunity to dive into some emotional depth with Jake, with Ben, certainly, but instead it left us mostly with a shoot 'em up, a well done shoot 'em up but it left us primarily with that. And I, as we sometimes do, putting our writer hats on, I, I kind of want to rewrite the mirror universe. Like if we're going to use that as a conceit, if we're going to use it as a literary trick, literary tool to tell our stories, what if there's another way to go with it? 
What if there's some part of the mirror universe that's actually better than ours? What if the temptation was to stay, not to fight, not, not to look at everything that's wrong with them and pat ourselves on the back for being better than them in, in our version of the universe? And, and honestly, few people could fault you for wanting to stay there, for wanting to be there instead. I mean, again, now you can literally just hop into a transporter and come and go as you please. And if we go with the idea of multiverses, well, there is an infinite number of uh, universes out there. There are ones where there are multiple ones where Jennifer Sisko lived and where she's not pulling a trick here over Jake or Ben to get their loyalties to help them with a problem. I mean, I'm so much more interested in the emotional reality there than just here's the contrivance for a purely plot driven story. You know, one of the things that I wanted to um, impress upon the listeners is that when John and I look at these and review these episodes, rarely do we discuss our own personal notes about them because we want to see where we organically land on these episodes. And John and I, I think, landed exactly where this episode has led us because I agree with everything that you're saying. Hmm. I think that one of the, huh. the, the biggest issue with what happens in these Mirror Universe episodes is that they strip away the the potential of what could happen in order to let these characters that we know turn into these kind of subverted versions of their own, um, of their, of their established characters, right? It's mm -hmm. like I said earlier on in the episode, the mirror universe isn't a license to take a character that, you know, and just invert them, invert their, their behavior to turn them into something that they're not. There's something deeper at play. Spock mm. in mirror mirror is still logical is still methodical. It's just that he's serving a different agenda, but it's not like Spock is unintelligent or right. unmethodical. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. when you're dealing with the mirror universe, you have the opportunity to really explore what makes these characters, these more savage versions of themselves. Again, quoting Mirror Mirror, Spock said to Kirk that it was far easier for civilized men to act as barbarians than barbarians to act as civilized men. Now, you're just mm -hmm. basically giving the writers carte blanche to write these characters as if they were these cartoonish versions of themselves, which is not the case. And that's where you're losing yeah. a huge opportunity in the mirror universe. The biggest issue that I had with this episode is that they never really dove into what this did to Jake, what yeah. seeing his mother did to Jake, because let me tell you something. And I'm going to be completely honest here. And I know that this is something that mm -hmm. I brought up before. And especially with the visitor, I lost my father to cancer in 2010. If I walked into a room and saw the spitting image of my father sitting there and he came up to me and started talking to me, I would be wrecked. I would yeah. be emotionally wrecked for a yeah. moment until I could compose myself. And I'm talking about somebody who looks like him, who smiles like him, who laughs like him, who has the same mannerisms. And like Jake said, even her hands feel the same. Right. That would completely upend 
my understanding of reality at that moment. Yeah. And it was never explored. And that was hugely a missed opportunity. And I think that that's where when they visit the mirror universe, that these opportunities are lost because Jake is so great. Siroc is so great as an actor. And we saw that in the visitor. And this is really like his biggest role since then in this season. Mm -hmm. And you don't give him enough investments with Jennifer, you know, with understanding what that would do to a young man that makes any difference in this episode at all. And I think that's tragic because he can do that. He can pull that off. We saw that in the visitor. We saw what he can do. And, and, And for me, that just, it's, it's heartbreaking in a way because this was the moment to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Of all chances of all opportunities you have here it is. But instead we get mired in plot and it, it it's it, it's a shame i mean look i i feel like we should just go ahead and, and go to the next segment <laughs> and, and, and and give our closing arguments you know really because I, I feel like we've landed there hot tip if you're a thuringi you should probably avoid the mirror universe also if you're a human probably if you're a cardassian too or a bullion or whatever So, John, at the end of Mission Log, as we traditionally do, we take a look at what we've discussed throughout the course of this episode, take a look at all of the uh, salient points, and see, at the very end, in our final analysis, does it hold up? What are the morals and meanings and messages? And how do you feel about what we've discussed regarding Shattered Mirror? Um. You know, typically when we're here and we talk about whether or not an episode holds up, uh, that is on purpose a very subjective question because we we sort of get to change the criteria week to week uh, to defend or or pick apart what we think holds up about an episode. And really, that could be in a number of things. It, It could be like a performance that saves an otherwise mediocre episode or a moment that really stands out. And in this case, you know, as much as we definitely dove into what's wrong with this episode in the last segment, I still feel a little bit torn because, well, there's a number of competing factors here. I I feel burnt out on mirror episodes, at least what they're doing with mirror episodes. But this one isn't necessarily a bad one. It gives them a little bit of depth, a little bit of texture on what's going on on the other side. I feel like the special effects were great, but at the same time, actually this episode really suffered from not being in HD. At least the version that I was watching was very compressed and it didn't look great. I feel like there was some fun character moments. Uh, I, I like it when the mirror universe is in always just purely two-dimensional but then i you know we talked in the last segment about all the missed opportunities to really make this stand out with something deep or poignant or significant for the characters that we actually care about so i don't love this as an episode i don't love this as a character drama 
it is a good action story with some great special effects, especially that those are effects made for TV. But um, to me, this has become sort of like inoffensive background noise. You know, if I had this episode on in the background while I'm doing something else, oh, okay. You know, there's nothing in it that really infuriates me. <laughs> but at the same time, there's nothing really significant or deep that I'm going to get out of it. So it's sort of forgettable in that respect. Yet at the same time, they were sort of throwing everything they had at the screen to wow you with it. So um, it's not bad in the respect that it creates a lot of offenses, but it's just not good in the respect that they really came up short. Mm -hmm. Um, What do you think? Well, I mean, I agree. I feel that this is kind of like a very yes and no episode for me. It's very true to form when Deep Space Nine combines quality production value. Because, you know, let's be honest, at, at this stage in the game uh, where Star Trek is at this time uh, being produced, it's a very well-produced show. Like you said, the effects, especially the final battle sequences when the Defiant was going up against Worf's flagship, phenomenal. Mm-hmm. It's That is fantastic to watch. But... Again, when you take a look at what this episode should have been, I would 100% always go with better character development over a flashy special effects graphics fight. Because those only really last mm-hmm. so much in your, you know, in your internal pantheon of what means uh, more to you as a story. The character moments and the character moments that should have been, or, wow, that fight scene was great. But it's just a fight scene, and there are so many of them out there, and done better. I'm not yeah. going to, dis- like you said, I'm not going to disparage the special effects crew that did this fight scene. But you know what? If I want to watch a really great battle scene that's Star Wars related, I'll watch Star Wars. Right. Right. What I wanted to see from this episode is something that they introduced at the very beginning, and the note fell flat from the very moment Jake said "Mom," and that was he should have been wrecked. Yeah. When he saw her, he should have been emotionally disturbed and that's where it should have gone. And it really should have been Jake and Benjamin, Benjamin trying to navigate Jake's feelings throughout the course of this episode, because just think about that. I mean, just think about how Cisco, as his father would try and navigate Jake's reaction to seeing this doppelganger of his mother and who she is, and especially who she's not. Yeah. And that, to me, is better, or that should have been better than any special effects money that they put into this episode. That, to me, means absolutely zero when it comes to losing the time that you should have invested into characters that would have made this so emotionally powerful. Because what's at stake here is Jake being reunited with one person, who would, be, who would eventually become the closest thing he would ever have to his mother again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I agree with you 100%, and I, I don't want to dump all the workload on you here, but I feel like whenever I get to the end of a mirror episode, <laughs> I'm just sort of at a loss for, for a moral meaning message. I mean, it, it's a mirror episode, so really if the if the moral meaning message if the meaning of the episode is well we got to a point in our production cycle where we just wanted to blow off some steam and have some fun 
Cool. I, I don't besmirch the cast or crew for wanting to do that. I'm glad you had fun doing it. But as a viewer, I just kind of go like, okay, but at the end of the day, what am I actually getting out of it? Because the special effects scene is only as good as, well, the effect scene that comes after it and after that and after that and after that. They always have to get bigger and better and more complex and more with a wow factor. But a, a true and earned emotional moment will stay with you forever. Only need to look back at, oh, I don't know, the end of The Wrath of Khan for that. <laughs> you know, and there are many others in Star Trek too, but that just happens to be the granddaddy of them all. So I'm at a little bit of a loss here for really trying to find a message because I think somewhere along the line, they started this thinking, wow, we really get to do something emotional and profound. And then that just went out the window. Mm -hmm. So did, did any of that stay here for you? Well, I think the scene that really sold me on this episode when it comes to a message was when Jennifer Sisko, she instinctively protected Jake from being killed by Kira. And oh, sure. that to yeah. and that to me was like if they if they delved more into Jake's and Jennifer's relationship and built that up a little bit more, then the stakes at that scene would have been higher because Jennifer did that reflexively and she said to Benjamin in in a scene or two before she said this is the son that I would never have. And she sacrificed herself for the son that she would never have, which makes her his mother at that moment. And it brings me to that very Harry Potter-ish kind of moment where the reason why Voldemort can't touch Harry Potter is because Harry Potter's mom sacrificed herself and shielded, shielded Harry with love. Mm -hmm. And that's what Jennifer did for a boy that she never met. And in the span of this episode, decided that at this time, she could have just let him go, let him get killed by Kira, and she would have gone off and she would have fought with the Alliance and did what she was supposed to do, which was her modus operandi from the beginning. Get Benjamin over here to work on the Defiant by any means necessary, including exploiting his son. Right. That's a great story. That yeah. is what the premise of the story was at the beginning. And if they stayed on that track and then Jennifer was killed protecting Jake, I would have been at tears at the end of this episode, which we should have been. Yes. So... Yeah. I think that that's where we lose a little bit in the translation. I mean, let's look at the emotional context of the visitor that you brought up and what Jake did from the teenage boy that he was at the second episode of this season, so it's not that long ago, mm -hmm. and what he sacrificed to get his father back because he watched his father die in front of his eyes. Now he watched his mother die in front of his eyes. Yeah. What would that do to him? And how would he yeah. move forward from that? So that's where I wanted this episode to go and explore the possibilities of Jake growing as this individual. I think that, at least for me, and again, putting on the writer's hat, <laughs> that, that I, love, I love that expression that you said, putting on the writer's hat. I think mm. at the end, instead of him being in the infirmary with Ben, I think that let's start... Uh, let's end this episode where we started on top of that promenade, which is obviously very important to Jake, kind of being wistful again. And I know that Sirach has the talent to hold that tear, that hanging tear in the eye when mm -hmm. he's looking at the people, the happy people, the happy couples, the happy families down below. And when Quark and Odo approach him, as they usually do, they just comfort him. 
Yeah. And don't say a word. And at the end, because Jake's a writer, he pulls out his pad and he said, there's nothing more powerful in the universe than a mother's love for her child. Norman, how do we get you a gig on the DS9 writing staff? Okay. <laughs> I just say there's got to be some strings we can pull. Uh, hindsight yeah. is a great gift. Hindsight is a great gift. It, it is. It is. But yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Our website and your opportunity to comment and connect with us is missionlogpodcast.com. If you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. And you can enjoy all the great Roddenberry podcasts at podcast.roddenberry.com, where you'll find Women at Warp, Priority One, The Trek Files, your daily Star Trek news, and Shabam! Shabam! And for more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, The Muse. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Man, they made this episode sound like one bad mother. Shut your mouth. Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.